0: And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm.
1: Thank you very much for listening to Trilove a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find them on Twitter at Trilon Cinema. My name is Jason Daphnis, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus.
2: I'm Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody
0: BH. I'm Harry. You can find me at Chitaki Harry.
1: And today we're very excited to be joined by a very special guest. Uh, Sarah Siembe-Huskin is joining us here uh, from Minneapolis. Uh, welcome, Sarah.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: I say from Minneapolis as if all of us aren't sitting in our apartments in Minneapolis <laughs> right now. Uh, but Sarah, you uh, are a storyboard artist here in Minneapolis, and you have a role with the Cult Film Collective, correct?
3: Yes. I'm the um, I would say junior member of the collective. I joined, I think last year, but um yeah, I've been involved with that. Um, which has been really interesting amid this pandemic, of course. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's been wonderful.
1: Uh and if we can just dig into it for a second, what do you do with the Cult Film Collective and how does that uh how does that affect what goes on in the trilon?
3: Yeah, so we organize quarterly film screenings, uh, obviously on film and um maybe some lesser known or yeah, you know more cult leaning films. So that runs the gamut from I think we did Death Dream that was before I joined anyway, but we screened Death Dream and Rolling Thunder one year and then this year we're Screening Seventh Seal. So, um, you know, we have, uh, an interest in less populist leaning film, but always on film film.
1: <laughs> Great. Well, perfect. It sounds right up the alley of the Trilon and all the programming they get up to. Uh, yeah. so, uh, and I guess I'll take this time to introduce the movie that we're going to be talking about today, uh, Son of the White Mare, a 1981 animated Hungarian film based on, I believe, elements of uh, of Hungarian folklore. Um, I didn't know much about this film going in, uh, but as I understand, Sarah has seen it before, and actually, this was one of the films that was scheduled to show at the trial on earlier this year, correct? Like April, May, something like that, and got pushed due to the pandemic. Um, and you had said at the time that you were interested in, in talking about this movie. Uh, can you dig a little bit into, excuse me, why this one is one that you wanted to talk about so much?
3: Yeah, actually, I had not seen it before. I saw it for the first time on Friday. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Or yesterday morning. Uh, I tried watching it Friday evening, and I I straight up almost had a panic attack. I was just not prepared for how uh, juicy and delicious this movie was. But yeah, I saw it for the first time this weekend, and um, I was more or less just interested in having a conversation about a movie that I had never heard about. Um, and right on. And I... Have never seen really discussed in my circle um, or in the animation scene. So the um, notion that it was going to be discussed and highlighted was wonderful to me uh, because animation, I think, could use a little more love.
1: For sure. We've been, I think, a a common refrain of us on this show is just at Trilon, play more anime, play more animated stuff because Akira was played last year and I think Kiki's Delivery Service was also Harry. Is that correct? Did, did they ever get around showing um, that or? Yes. Yeah, yep, that was, yep. it was part of was the gonna um, be a,
2: a guest screening. Yeah, exactly. Right.
1: Yeah. Yep. Excellent. Um, so, uh, I guess I, 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 I don't know where I got the idea that you had seen it before, but I'm really excited to get your, I guess, first blush thoughts on it. Harry and Cody and I just got out of a screening a couple hours ago that John put on for us at the Trilon, Uh, and we, I guess, shout outs to John. Cool. Thank you Thank so you much. John. Again. He's, uh, he's the realist. Um, and, uh, I usually like to take this moment. I mean, it's it's a little hard to synopsize this film, especially since our uh, expert synopsizer is is currently in Chicago. He just moved yesterday, so um, R.I.P. to Aaron. But uh, I guess this film is about a magical white mare who births three sons who are meant to slay uh, three legendary dragons, save three um, I guess legendary princess, I keep using the term legendary, uh, save three legendary princesses and bring order back to the world on a cosmic scale, uh, which is the broadest strokes I'm going to paint because um, this movie moves in some really interesting ways with respect to how it depicts all of the all of its elements of its plot, I guess. Uh, I want to open the floor to, we'll start with Cody, uh, just like your quick first read on the movie, what you liked, didn't like, and we can dig in from there a little bit more.
2: Sure, definitely. I would even go as far as to say, Jason, that your summation of the movie was legendary. Uh very well done. Um given what wow. this movie is.
1: Wow. I'm gonna edit this. <laughs> uh
2: yeah, okay. Um yeah, uh and I, I think we've alluded to this a little bit and I'm sure it'll come up uh again, you know, as, as we talk, but this movie is generally a big reason why I and presumably so many others go to and treasure the Trilon Cinema. Um this is yet another you know pretty beautifully unique opportunity that we had to seek out uh and watch uh, a piece of art that'd be otherwise pretty difficult to see. Um though I will say in the case of Son of the White Mare there is a new 4K restoration, you know that's kind of the whole reason that it's that it's showing um and it is currently available to watch uh on Vimeo right now and hopefully it will be you know, even more widely and easily available to audiences. You know, moving forward, um, it's a shame that the pandemic, uh, you know, affected so many things, in, including you know the release of of something like this. Um, but it's you know, honestly, a pretty simple uh, and straightforward story. Um, as Jason mentioned, you know, a lot of elements are drawn from uh, legends and and fairy tales and fables of European uh, nomadic peoples, which are shouted out in sort of like a dedicated to. A uh, bit at the start of the film. Um, uh, I never, you know, I was uh, an- anticipating feeling lost and I was kind of readying myself for that just given how ambitious the animation was. You know, it's, there's some pretty intricately complex uh, sequences. Um, you know, and uh, I was just, you know, uh, anticipating the, you're know, mentally preparing myself for, okay, I may not get everything that I need to because this is going to be so different, you know, after seeing the trial on. Uh, trailer for this. Um, but I never felt that way. Um, and that was uh, that was awesome. Um, you know, it's a heroic quest. Uh, big focus on, you know, uh, visually on nature and natural imagery with some some motifs thrown in there that kind of elevate the story. Um, you know, things like time and space and the natural cycles that we go through and all of that worked for me. Uh, a lot. I I'd say, but I'd be curious to hear what you all think too.
1: For sure. Uh, Harry, give us your. Give us your, uh, I guess,
0: sure. Um Yeah, Cody covered this already, but it's important to shout out that Arbalos Films is doing a 4K restoration of this, um, which was originally slated to um, be seen at the Fantasia International Film Festival, but that was... Uh, and then it was—it was actually supposed to be released theatrically, which is even more, in my mind, pretty unusual and really cool. Um, but then, obviously, the pandemic happened, and instead, it was released on Vimeo. Um, it's really cool to see animation being restored uh, in this way. Um, I really hope we get to see more of it. Particularly, um, I haven't seen a lot of European animation, right, outside of like um, Fantastic Planet and some of the other um obvious ones right like there there's a history of japanese animation and of western animation but outside of that it's really tough to find um a lot of really exciting especially feature-length animated um material like this and so each one of these that we get to see is is like such a treasure and particularly um marcel uh jankovic's i hope i'm pronouncing that right is like a really acclaimed um director and he won a Palme d'Or for a short film and um, was nominated for an Academy Award. And so it's like a, a really a lost like treasure to be able to see this. Um, a couple of things about it really, really worked for me. Overall, I I enjoyed the experience of watching it quite a lot. Um, in particular, I thought, um, and John brought this up a little bit after the movie as well, but uh, th- this movie is is very interested in uh, transformation in animation like it, it keeps showing transitions and one thing becoming another in one smooth um, motion in a way that feels very um, primed for animation it was like they, they were I'm always really interested in seeing like how a movie answers the question why does this have to be animation right and I think this movie does a really cool job of that by being kaleidoscopic in the sense that everything that you're seeing in the frame is changing all the time. Um, In particular, the, that first retelling when the white mare tells her son, the story was really striking for that. Um, The way that things shifted and perspective was changing constantly such that something would be a face and then it would be, Um, an animal or then it would be a a castle and you got the sense of the shifting of time forward or backward through that as well as um, the shifting of people and that sort of central idea about about change and transformation sort of persists thematically throughout the story um, which is really really cool Um, and then also uh, Cody like you had said um, just like it was funny how I was so ready and readily understood that these were, this was mythic storytelling just by that little shout out at the beginning of the movie that said, this is dedicated to Hunic and Averick and, uh, Hungarian legends. I immediately sort of was in a headspace to be like, okay, this is like watching, um, creation myth. Right. And that made so much of what was happening on screen make a lot more sense to me in, in a way that felt very, um, exciting and comfortable, even though the you know, like even the things that normally I, I might be critical of, like the repetition, uh repetition in myth makes so much sense that it was much easier and, and more pleasurable to um swallow in that way. Uh and, you know, the three brothers, the three princesses, like it the the whole idea of mythic cycles in this movie, particularly with transformation, um, really worked for it, I think. And so this felt very complete to me. Um and it's it's surprising that I hadn't heard about it before given how um masterful it feels, I guess. Um that's what I think.
1: For sure. I uh I have a hard time believing that like somewhere along the line I didn't at least hear about this movie and just kind of forgot about it maybe. Um Sarah, as as an artist and as somebody who is excited to see this movie, what what was your uh I guess what are your top level thoughts?
3: Yeah, um well, not to lead with like the most extreme <laughs> high um, of my thoughts. Do but, it, do it. Um, this is probably one of the best movies I've seen in years. Um, Hell yeah! I'm I I am excited to. I, I hope they release this on Blu-ray or something because um, I want I want to be able to watch it all the time and constantly. It was. Very moving and just visually just such a breath of fresh air uh, i i i just i don't really know what to say aside from that it's it's um it's everything I want in animation it's expressive it's colorful the sound and music was uh, just so engaging it, it was almost like visually tactile like I just couldn't stop looking at the the graphic nature of those those dragons or like ogres or you know the way they're designed and um, it just threw me back to like oh man this reminds me of this thing and that thing and you can see all of the connections whether they're intended or just coincidental um, like connections to Jack Kirby and um like Mobius and even the Batman animated series or Batman begins you know the graphic nature of those characters and um regarding European animation I've been slowly dipping my toes back into it because it is really hard to find and it isn't as canonized as say um you know, the, the Disney classics or some of your beloved anime classics. And every time I dip my toes back in, I'm, I'm just so pleased. (laughs) It, it was such a wonderful, wonderful experience. And I, I just had two kind of tiny little petty nitpicks, which are technical nitpicks, but yeah, I, I need to watch this movie immediately. I need to make everyone watch it. I, I was talking to my partner like, oh, I need you to watch this so we can talk about it immediately. It was just, to me, that's the pinnacle of awesome film is something you want to watch immediately as soon as it's done or you wish it could have lasted forever or you want to share it with someone immediately. Oh, I, I just am in love with this movie.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think I know exactly what you mean by that sort of like how European animation in general and particularly this movie, I think, uh, is not quite as you use the term canonized uh, as, you know, your your Ghibli's and your Disney's and your, you know, other huge studios. Um, and I think that contributed to my perception of the movie too, where there's that sort of almost mythical intangible quality of like this movie hasn't been legally available anyway for 40 years and not ever in the United States whatever, you know, whatever audiences have seen it here, it's like, they are the sort of underground, the, the, the pirates, the people getting it, uh, you know, spreading it through, through the underground, I suppose. Um, that definitely contributed to how I, uh, perceived the movie. It's, it's easy to let that go with this new, um, 4k restoration because it does just look so incredible and sound so incredibly good. It seems almost completely modern in a lot of ways. Um, the only way you can tell is because like, it's a style that you're not, that you're not seeing today um i really quite enjoy this movie i think that it uh it's it's animation style and sort of what it does with like rhyming visuals throughout um and how it goes from very simple to very complex very quickly and like like harry said it never really stops moving there's always something going on and sometimes i can feel indulgent in anime in this it feels really necessary i think um it was mostly i think like a straightforward fable but occasionally it dropped in really funny or fun moments uh which i think Uh, at least Harry and Cody, because I was sitting next to you guys (laughs) while we were watching it and just sort of like sharing chuckles moments that it felt like if this isn't due to localization, the filmmakers knew exactly what they were doing, what response they wanted to elicit in that moment. Um, I just, because I feel like it's maybe a good place to start talking about how we'll talk about this movie. uh, Sarah, how are you going to get people to watch this movie? Uh, What are you going to tell them about (laughs) it? How are you going to sell them on it?
3: Oh, well, if my enthusiasm isn't um, enough to sell them on (laughs) seeing it. uh, Usually, I don't know, it really depends on who I'm trying to or uh, suggesting the movie to if they're really into animation, um, indicating that, hey, this is a part of animation history. And even though it's something we've never heard about or seen before it isn't as um, readily available or wasn't as readily available Uh, the influence is or, or even if it's just from that region or coincidental the influence is something that we interact with and see kind of everywhere like with Jack Kirby I mean for me it's kind of obvious like Holy crap, like this is reminding me of Jack Kirby right now, the color the the way that um characters are posed and positioned, the way they interact with each other, and of course that's you know one of the foundations of comics <laughs> superhero comics, um Mobius, who is a huge um uh, like European comics artist um, whose influence is also seen um even in anime and Um, you know, stuff like heavy metal, um, you know, the, (laughs) as problematic as heavy metal can be, uh, you know, the influence of that carries over into modern animation now too. And to see something that it isn't a super, well, it is a superhero kind of, it's a mythological superhero, but it isn't a cape and cowl hero, so to speak, but to see something so ancient and beloved and we even see that towards the end the like juxtaposition of this ancient myth um, um against i interpret it as like buildings and structures uh tree oh, yeah. shakers mm-hmm. looking right. down on a city the idea that this um this ancient being or this ancient um story has presence and meaning in a modern world that's how i would sell it it's like dude this is history man like this is (laughs) animation history you gotta you gotta watch it and if not just for how beautiful it is and how colorful and expressive it is um it, it has meaning in Animation and an art, and yeah, I, that's mm-hmm. my cell. <laughs> that's my oh yeah. that's <laughs> that
1: totally that totally makes sense. Like uh, the, hearing you talk about it, I can imagine like the, the the use case, the case study of somebody who would have seen this again. Uh, you know, an American probably who saw this and either illicitly or you know, uh, back in the eighties and nineties when it wasn't available commercially over here, and just thinking the p- type of people who must have sought that out at the time. Uh, even though it was so so unavailable, so intangible must like, there's no way you could watch this if you're that interested in anime and not be affected by it. Like hearing you talk about it, clearly you're pulling, uh, like it's obvious influences directly and still lauding what it did that was unique and what was, and what's still interesting to you today. You're probably going to go back to other styles of animation and other works that you enjoy and say like, man, that reminds me of sound of the white mare now, right? It feels influenced and influential in a lot of ways. Um, because it does lead to such a dichotomy in my brain about like, you use the great term ancient, Sarah, to describe sort of the the, the mythical qualities in the storytelling here um, versus sort of that very modern awareness of the audience. Uh, Cody, it seemed like you might have had something to say when I brought up the like fun and funny moments that coursed throughout this movie and how they were almost positioned. I won't say in contrast, but in many ways, complementary to the more straightforward Like storytelling and folklore-ish vibes. Uh, did you did you get the same feeling I did?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, and you know we've at various points talked about kind of the expectations we had of this movie coming in, or maybe rather our lack of expectations. And with this being, you know, again going back to like the the 4K release trailer that the trial on showed, I. I think uh, on one of the various levels, I was taking everything in. I sort of thought to myself, it'd be really easy for uh, Jankovic's and and company to take themselves so seriously with you know this this uh, stern heroic quest. Um, and I I wasn't banking on it being so fun. Um, and I I was thinking about that halfway through um, because yeah, I think I was very physical, uh, with my laughter in my seat, which is undoubtedly, uh, what you were, what you were referring to, Jason, um, apologies if I got in the way with any of my head. Movements. Never ever uh,
1: apologize for that. It's a movie <laughs> thing, man.
2: That's fair. Um, and I, I, I was trying to rationalize that. I was like, why, uh, why is this so funny? Maybe more importantly, how, um, and I, I guess what I landed on is, you know, thinking back to the things that really tickled me, um, I, I, the, um, you know, the brothers are such, um I guess kind of the the opposite of of caricatures they're just kind of one note and my understanding is that was kind of intentional you know these are these are heroes Jankovic surmised that you know children don't really need to get uh full arcs with these people they know what they stand for um and they know what what the quest is so we can focus on you know the the symbolism and the imagery instead of focusing on you know the nitty-gritties of characterizing these people um so that was nice uh, I you know, I guess in some respects we got uh we did get facial expressions uh, from them, which was one of the things that I wasn't necessarily expecting. um Stone, oh God, I wrote their names down and they translate to uh, stone, stone crumbler yeah, crumbler, yeah, Stone crumbler was the first one where because he was you know, he would show signs of anxiety he had had a few moments where he would like give a thumbs up um and I was thinking about how. Uh, like his and the rest of their faces were, were put forth and the way that they expressed themselves and emote was, it it was humorous. And kind of what I landed upon was because it was so, they didn't show themselves transition to emoting, you know, it would just be like, you know, this is their face now and this is their mace. And it's usually something pretty uh, exaggerated and that's what made it so funny and that was more or less confirmed um you know going to the uh, the IMDB trivia which is gospel uh, as far as i'm concerned um but uh what Jankovic reportedly sort of explained was that the in between animators as he described it for the movie were not particularly good at drawing um so there weren't a lot of uh uh facial the facial expressions were kept to a minimum you know so the kind of uh, and again i'm not an animator uh i'm you know, I'm speaking, uh, out of my ass here, but it, it seemed to me that that meant, you know, the, the, you, kind of go for broke with the emotions rather than, you know, rather than focusing on the subtleties of these characters, both, you know, uh, as far as like the writing goes and, and visually just take them to their extremes. And, uh, and like that, that work that did help complement sort of this surrounding imagery, um, again, in ways that I, I wasn't, uh, that I weren't I wasn't really banking on it, and I'm glad that that was a nice little bonus.
1: Yeah, I. It's almost like like this piece, as as Harry was saying, it starts with in memory of these you know nomadic peoples of of years past. It's almost like I don't know the ways in which they were bringing the story to life were very conscious ways. I think the I think Fantastic Planet in particular really affected my. I mean, all respect to Fantastic Planet as as a piece, it, it is not my favorite today or you know when i first watched it i guess last year it would have been um in terms of animation either style or storytelling i was expecting it to be much more fluid and experimental than it actually ended up being i think it's uh its reputation might precede it a little too much might have hyped it too much for me but so that was my expectation going in was that sort of you get Minimally animated, and I think this is what you were talking about, Cody, minimally animated faces and sort of uh, not too much expression, but definitely a focus on motion. And this movie instead had sort of both of that. The way that I sort of internally tie it is like they were trying to bring uh, to the forefront the folklore and myths of these cultures past uh, and sort of the the vestiges of them today. And they wanted to do that through a very modern lens of like, yes, these are going to be like um, monolithic Mythical creatures, uh, that, you know, a, a, a white mare, a magical white mare births three humanoid, uh, men who then defeat, th- uh, three non like scaled dragons, but give them all very like relatable human emotions at times, not necessarily in the plot, but in what you're seeing. I think that was just a really fun, strange friction almost that made me. Like it kept me interested in a lot of places where I could have been lost by the film or could have been, could have lost my, uh, my train of thought or my attention. It kept me, it kept me going.
0: Um, okay, yeah, I have a bunch of thoughts. I'll try to get through quickly. Um, first of all, I think tension is, is exactly the right word, um, Jason, for that. It's, it's, uh, it's incongruous, or at least um, upsetting expectations, right? I think that's why it's funny. Like, I think the funniest moment that I can remember is when Tree Shaker reaches down to Stone Crumbler and says, put her there, brother, uh, which was just, again, like you said, maybe localization, but like, it was just a very funny, um, it's very funny to see these mytho uh, poet characters acting um as very human people stone crumblers literally just a source of comedic um relief throughout the movie which is not expected maybe particularly because like you said fantastic planet for for how good it it is and can be um it's also very arch and very serious um and i feel that ironically a lot of these big uh feature length entertainment um animation experimentations are often have that reputation as something that's very capital S serious. And so to see comedic, um, and, and particularly a modern, um, sort of, uh, deconstructive, um, or, or I should say fourth wall breaking type of humor applied here, um, kind of like in, um, the the beginning of uh belladonna of sadness a little bit um although it mostly dispenses with that by the end uh was was interesting um definitely and and i think that the humor comes from that uh that expectation upset um the other thing was that sarah said something i really liked about this movie's status as history. And I think that the humor actually kind of has something to do with that. Like you had said, Jason, this is a movie in my mind, as I think about it more and more, that's really interested in its position in history. It might even be interested in providing a place for the myths that we, um, that it's depicting the way Sarah said and bringing them forward into, um, contemporary times to demonstrate that there's still a place for that type of thinking. Maybe even making the claim that animation is the place for something like that, or that animation and animated storytelling is a a contemporary vector that is sort of um, parallel to what the original sort of mythic storytelling was in an interesting way. Um, That that positioning is really fascinating to me because this movie's also so interested. It seems like in its position in animated history. Um, I think uh, Sarah, you had said that like, and I felt this way too, although I'm not as educated as you are, obviously. Um, so I couldn't point to particular references, but um, a- every time as I was watching this, every five minutes or something, I was like, Oh, like, that's what that's from. Like, I, I feel like I'm constantly going to be looking at every animated movie I watch going forward differently because I'll be, lo- I'll be seeing places where son of white mayor uh, influenced it. And so to, to think of that and to think about how son of white mayor is, is itself interested in positioning itself within history and in bringing history forward is really interesting. Like this is a, it's a movie that's, that's um, you can see why it was restored because it's like, it's a piece of, like it's a touchstone, I think, uh in a really like um obvious way, which is really, really cool to see,
3: yeah, yeah, well, and also the the nice thing about this movie, or the actually I would say wonderful thing about this movie too, is that you could extend that beyond animation and beyond like visual storytelling, like even just going down like back down to the the story and the, the connection it has to creation mythology and like the world tree and, you know, things that you see kind of culturally everywhere. Um The rule of three, the divine rule of three. Um There is sort of a, you know, a connection to the sort of Christ like figure who has to conquer the tree in order to come to his full power. You, you know, the, it, it's, It's wonderful to explore, like, oh man, like, visually, this is reminding me of this shot in Sleeping Beauty or this shot in Thief in the Cobbler. And I, like, personally, that's super exciting, too. Like, I'm gonna, like, there's a wealth of visual history and connectivity in this movie. But then you get the added bonus (laughs) of, holy crap, like, in terms of the story and the characters. And the symbolism, and the meaning, like how that applies to us as modern-day people, sheltered at home in 2020, that, like, that just expands the exploration that this movie just begs us to do. And yeah, this, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I just love this movie
0: so much. <laughs> and they, they like yeah, run it's, parallel it's- to each other, right? They're, yeah. like the the one thing that it's doing with its narrative and the thing that it's doing with its visuals are sort of their, their parallel um, ideas. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Jason. Go ahead.
1: Oh no, I was just going to lead in with another question. So if you've got more thoughts about that, Harry, please, please feel free to uh, drop them there.
0: Sure. Um, yeah, no, I just like, I, I think that that it's the particular story of the son of white mare and the the fact that it's about a cycle uh, coming to be complete again. Um, and it, it's about um, the white mare providing this um, sustenance in the form of her milk to her son that ends up giving him the strength to set right what once went wrong. And like that, the idea that it's like, this is about, this is about, um, a storytelling or an an idea or way of being coming back to win the day after it had been um, almost eradicated or sort of like been on the decline. And then you like, you juxtapose that with the idea of what this story is, which is like, this is a story that is perhaps fallen out of vogue that is now coming back to be important again. Um, And yeah, I I guess I'm just agreeing with Sarah, but like, that's, that's fascinating to me. The fact that um, sort of like materially and um, artistically, uh, they were able to depict their themes in such an interesting way, um, using the the status of story and animation in tandem like that it was really fascinating.
1: For sure, uh, Sarah, you said at the top that this movie has, and I'll quote, "everything you want to see in animation." Uh, what do you tend to look for in animation, and how did you see it in the Son of White? Excuse me, Son of the White Mare. Like what, yeah. are, what are the, what are the ones that you're like, this is a, a hallmark of success, I guess.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, I should say I'm not that picky. I mean, people who know me are probably, would probably roll their eyes at me saying that, uh, but I am not that picky, but every now and then, you know, something just emerges and blows me out of the water and consistently they're usually, well, first they're very colorful. Um, and they wrangle color in a really wonderful, exciting way. It isn't just a, like a vomit of everything. It's very intentional in like it's, um, visual presentation, but yeah, I love, I love the, like, I don't know, the psychedelic far out stuff, uh, like visually, which is why I I love Mobius and I love Jack Kirby and I have a love-hate but oftentimes love relationship with heavy metal is I just, I love the weird spiritual weirdness that comes from taking myth and legend and trying to articulate it visually. And not trying to articulate it literally, if that makes any sense. Like when um, Tree Shaker is battling the second dragon, it's like an ogre made of guns and cannons. And when we're when we hear about these dragons, I'm thinking, oh, well, it's going to be a dragon of myth that we're um, familiar with, a sort of serpentine creature. And no, these are metaphors of war and conflict and it, it i don't know like when i when i experience something that blows me out of the water it it just for it's usually something that forces me to think beyond the literal beyond the what i am literally looking at and when he's fighting that ogre made of guns and cannons and um like i think his club that ogre's club was literally like a bomb or something Mm -hmm. it made me immediately want to pause the movie and read about hungarian history (laughs) Uh, because it's like okay well clearly war was not kind to the hungarian people and these various um, peoples um whether it's modern warfare or ancient warfare and i don't know i i don't i just don't really know what to say uh, aside from that it movies and really any art that is able to present these histories in a way that isn't coercive or propaganda or um heavy-handed and is maybe a little more nurturing and kind. and you know like that's kind of a a touchy thing cuz obviously when we discuss history it doesn't have to be kind and nurturing all the time it it should we should be very aware of the nature of history sometimes but i don't know i it was just incredibly enlightening and surprising and exciting and it felt very sincere it just felt very sincere like this is coming from someone who cares about history and mythology and the effect it has on people and you see that in his extended work too um, if you've seen his other films his shorts and I think he he He's done a couple of other feature-length films, but um, he deals heavily in hubris and the struggle of usually men, um, but you know their struggle and how it is ultimately their undoing. And yeah, Son of the White Mare ends on a positive note. It isn't just Hubris, hubris 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 it's hopeful it's okay well we have to undo this um this hubris because um it was you know at the beginning of the film it's uh, these princesses um which is very close to the pandora myth and the you know the story of eve and all of that you know released right. the evils of the world onto humanity and it's hopeful because these uh three beings correct that and yeah it's hopeful it's sincere it's enlightening it's everything i love in film <laughs> and colorful it's pretty it's very pretty <laughs>
2: uh yeah i love that breakdown um a whole lot and i love that you uh brought up the the seven-headed i guess quote unquote dragon um because that was sort of a uh, a sticking point for me um sticking point is probably the wrong way to describe that but that that was a distinct point where Uh, I got to thinking what this what this movie was and what it was doing. And it kind of goes back to what we've been talking about, where um, you were discussing this movie's place, uh, its history, you know, where it kind of slots in. And with this being such a, you know, a tale as old as time, you know, this is an amalgamation of our history and it can be tough to take. Something different from a story like this narratively. It usually, a, a, and a, again, we've, you know, you all have done a, a great job of of talking about, you know, the other things that we can take from a, a story like this other than the story itself. And usually that comes from what else we see on screen, the, the animation and everything else. And the fact that these, that these monsters, uh you know, the things that we're combating are, um, you know they're they're combating uh industry uh modernization um technology to to certain ex- uh certain extents and um the things that uh Jankovic's um the the scenes that he treasured the most coming from or coming out of this process were you know the the times in uh I, one of them was I, I think that last sort of shot where um tree shaker is is walking and he's towering over uh, this modern city and and there's there's smog everywhere and it it's this this final note that is very hopeful and it's also you know um you know not necessarily we're we're not coming to the conclusion that we've defeated um you know this this uh idea of modernization that the movie has put forth but rather the fact that it will like it will always be here you know this is a a, a classic myth being told in in 1981 there's a, a certain uh, element of reality that uh has worked its way into this that I I think really works and and uh Jankovics uh, apparently had made this movie with the intent of uh it being you know latched onto by audiences uh aged 14 and older. Um but it was uh, apparently it, like children really took to it too. Um he you know met many uh you know like parents uh of children you know age six and up who really you know they were obsessed with the movie and you know i think you take the you know this movie's focus on you know we've talked about the idea of cycles and and seasons and rules of of three you know the things that make these sort of stories digestible in a way that's reminiscent of something like goldilocks and the three bears uh or something like that and then put put this this conflict put this spin on it that uh ingrains it into something that is you know, uh, you know, we can draw from it in 1981, and we can draw from it in in 2020. Uh, and I don't like there's there's a certain timelessness that comes with it. That uh, and again, I'm ending a lot of my thoughts this way, but that really worked. You know, that really landed for me.
0: Yeah, it uh, it really distinctly reminded me of like reading Beowulf or like uh, um, Gawain and the Green Knight or something in college, or like Gilgamesh, where like you would read like every encounter would be like its own like sub story chapter within this giant uh, mythic storytelling, and like you would you would spend hours like like analyzing. Uh, What every individual element of that myth meant, right? Like, like the fact that the ogre was made out of guns would be huge. You could you could analyze what smog means in this movie, the way that it's about um, misdirection and doubt, and um, a lack of self-awareness or a lack of um, understanding of truth because it, it's like it's represented by the, um, the first wife and by the gnome with his um, beard. And eventually that beard, that smog is turned into a weapon that tre- tree shaker can wield against them. Um, and the, the fact that everything returns to where it was, but with the exception that now the children are the Kings uh, reunited with the original wives Um, and like I said, the fact that, that the mayor's milk and the mayor who was originally the mother of all of this, the forefather's wife, um, is the, the person who gives the strength, but she has to be destroyed to do it. She has to give her own life to make that happen. And so there's a sense that, that the mother is no longer there. And now the children have to, um, they, they have to take care of themselves. Um, the, the myth is such a, it's such a perfect thing to marry to this story, um, it, it uh, to to Sarah's point, like I got me thinking. Like I wanted to, I wanted to break down every scene where it was like, okay, what does it mean that the gnomes eating this cauldron on their bellies now? Like, what it what does that represent? Like that it's a symbolically rich story, even though it feels um, simultaneously very accessible. I think right. Like I don't, I didn't feel like I was lost or like I was missing something. I feel like I came away with a, a full and deep understanding of what this movie was doing. And I think that it would be ripe for uh, close reading in the same way that that um, classic mythological stories would be right. Where you could talk about what the dragon at the end of Beowulf is forever right. Uh, I think you could talk about what the last dragon in this movie is. The fact that it's like a city that's shifting and changing, and the fact that the gnome hides in one of the one of his heads. Um, or you could talk about what the rope means, right? Like there, it's it's fascinating that there is so much. Um, rich symbolism that seems sort of reawakened from what I have to presume are actual myths of Hungarian folklore, and um, it's there's something really like like beautiful and um, like uh, re- restorative about the fact that that he looked to these ancient myths um for this inspiration. And the idea seems to be that that looking for those myths and reawakening those myths is going to give us some knowledge. Even now, they have a place, um, and I, I think that that's a really cool um, and very sincere uh, to Sarah's point theme uh, to come at here. Um, and it, it was really fun to like to be exposed to new myths in that same way. It's very exciting.
3: Yeah, I. I agree completely, and I think we should also bring in the um the theme of nature as well um, because with the you know with the theme of industrialization and of course the smog, you know pollution, this movie was made in the early eighties, so production would have been late seventies probably, and I'm sure they were very aware of um pollution and uh, the effect we have on the natural world and the like, even uh, like, even the fact that the castles turn into apples that he carries with him. And when he, and that he's feeding this Griffin oxen and a part of his own body. And it's, the connection with nature and uh, the natural world I could have actually used, I would have loved it if this movie was maybe an hour longer and he was just like exploring a magical forest or something. Like I, I love this movie so much. I wish it never ended. I wish it was still going. I wish I was still watching it right now. Um, (laughs) But like if you, if you look at like textile art and um You know, uh, ceramic art uh, from history, like ancient times, and all through history, um, the presence of nature and the natural world is uh, such an important aspect of uh, it visually, but also like theme, thematically, and metaphorically. So, even when we think about like the Bible, like the apple, you, you know, like these these seemingly small. Things in the natural world have such power and pertinence, and the idea that a castle could be an apple—I—I I feel like I sound like a like just absolutely absurd right now. But it makes so much sense. <laughs> um, the idea that when, uh, like, the natural world is this beautiful, wonderful thing worth treasuring and um, preserving and the castle that is also an apple. And I think when they expand, they almost look like halved peaches or apples where the seed or where, where the hard seed would be in, say, a peach is where the, the castle is nestled. Right. Um, and, of course, there's also um, sort of a, a a sexual aspect to all of this, too, you know, the seed and the the sort of visual representation of uh, the where the seed would go like it's very um like vaginal and purposefully i'm sure um but yeah it's again there's just so much to explore in this movie it, it just boggles the mind how um how much splendor there is of this movie to explore and um discuss but yeah the natural world um part
0: yeah i this has maybe the it's it's a a piss take on phallic imagery right where like he the tree shaker when he gets the sword he sheathes it between his legs so that it literally is like the most obvious phallic which is hilarious (laughs) because like like swords are always a phallic symbol right and so like it's super funny that that they're willing to have fun with even um symbolism
1: yeah it's uh I don't mean to take the mic away from Sarah, but that mm-hmm. led to a lot of the like un- maybe unintentionally funny moments too. Um, I want to I want to give the mic back to you, Sarah, because I feel like you are going to have more to say about this than I will.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, this movie is not shy about um, just showing uh, an ogre's balls. <laughs> you know, it's. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, I was so is... hoping
1: you'd bring that up. <laughs>
3: Um, it actually uh going back to like, oh, this reminds me of that. Uh there's an there's uh an issue or or short comic by Mobius, um, and it's part of his like Arzok series, which is I, I think it's a mostly dialogue-free series where this um this sort of strange being flies over alien landscapes on this uh pterodactyl-like creature but he encounters this gigantic sort of ogre creature and uh it it too had uh, gigantic balls and i'm thinking man i wonder if he was inspired by this movie because it looks just like that ogre <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> i recognize those balls those
3: balls but it was um yeah like the the sword which is definitely purposeful. I, I'm sure he was very aware that, you know, the sword represents the penis, literally, oh, in this movie. Um, just like how, I'm sure the apples or peaches represent, you
0: know, they represent the
3: princesses. Um,
0: and, right, and there's the wellspring of the castle, right? So yeah. there's some birth imagery there
3: Yeah. And even the, the opening in the tree that um, him and his uh, mother, the white mare, are holed up in for a while. Um, And, you know, there, it's not, um, it's not unfamiliar in mythology for there to be sort of a fixation on um, like genitals and nature and, you know, the connections between those things. So it, it, it wasn't unexpected and it didn't take me out of it really, but yeah, it's, it's there. (laughs) And I'm sure, you know, as a queer person, I'm sure from a queer lens too, there's a whole other discussion to be had about um, the nature of like, you know, like the binary nature that some of these um, representations bring the idea that uh, men are uh, aligned with you know the sword aka the penis and that the princesses are aligned with uh these fruit aka the vagina and of course through you know, from the perspective of a queer person um you know there's much more nuance <laughs> you know of um, in at least for me, anyway, um, there's much more nuance to be had um, regarding gender and sex and sexuality in that regard. But it's, um, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, that's all I got to say. <laughs> but <laughs> now, you're,
1: yeah. you're you're getting at I think some of my larger thoughts about like there's a lot of and again whether like the comedy was one of these things that I'm just not certain if it was unintentional or intentional, but it still sort of like had the same effect on me where it's like, there's a whole lot of, and I might be reading too much or too little into it, but there's, there seems to be a whole lot of like questionably homoerotic uh, subtext to a lot of this, uh, to a lot of like the specific plot elements of this film. Like when each brother in sequence decide or uh, fails to like make the porridge and uh, braid the rope, uh, they are spanked. Uh, in the nude by their brothers who are straddling and mounting them, and, and it's they're like they're thick as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> they are, they are pretty dummy thick. <laughs> uh, and like I, I forget, is it iron or Iron Thrasher? I, for, I forget that that brother's name. Unfortunately, Iron
2: um, Iron Temperer. Uh, iron believe it was the translation.
1: Okay, yeah. uh, so Iron Temperer just has his cheeks out all the time. Like he's not wearing; he's just wearing his like blacksmith's cape sort of thing I, I don't know there's a whole lot that feels and it's sort of almost serving two masters where it's like you would imagine that children who were told this story just like you know how uh ancient greek myth is just full of uh like normalized heter- or homosexuality and uh a, like a lot of sexual uh like you know parables i guess you imagine that this was told to children in these uh, cultures that it's intending to like honor and represent uh, directly, as as we've seen it here, where it's like elements of sexuality course through the story because they're part of life, because they're part of uh, sort of like you know for 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 most for many people existence, you know, like it's it's a it's part of the natural world, quote unquote. Uh, whether or not that's like an accurate worldview to have, it is something that feels. That feels like it has some fidelity to that, uh, to to those cultures that have come and gone. I guess to the way that this story might have been told in the in the first place. uh But you're right; it is just sort of coursing with, uh and I would love to, uh, unfortunately there's very little writing about this movie that I've found. Um, I'm sure that there are retrospectives and there's sort of with the release. Now there's going to be a whole lot of like new critical appraisal of it. And I'm just going to really enjoy seeing how people start to think about it and how like a more diverse group of writers and critics seems to come. It seems to approach it because I feel like it, I think we all are in agreement that it's sort of ripe for that kind of lens. Uh, but just the, even top level, it's not something that you can miss. It's not like often super subtext. It's just easy sometimes to laugh at how left field. Some of it comes through. Um, I, I enjoyed it. It was it's like, it adds a lot of color to the movie. I just don't, I can't, I couldn't parse in my head whether like this is intentionally trying to honor a, like a way that the story might've been told or like the text quote unquote, like the ur er text of this story, or if it's, like a slight modernization and a wink at the audience sort of thing, you know what I mean
0: um yeah, I uh go ahead, sir,
3: oh okay, yeah, um i yeah with with a lot of myth, and I'm no historian, <laughs> so I'm uh, treading as carefully and thoughtfully as I can here, but um to my knowledge um. When we're talking about peoples who were eventually kind of, um, eventually colonized by the Christians, um, I think a lot of that nuance or the potential for that nuance, um, has been by design kind of erased, um, especially what we would what we would consider like kind of quote unquote modern Christianity. Um, because in lots of myths, um, ancient myths, there is potential for queer theory to come in and really, um, you know, chew on some stuff and, um, create conversations that I don't think we really see, um, Today, So even with like Norse mythology, um, there's, to my knowledge, especially with like Loki, there's like a queer element there. Um, And with this, uh, it was very obvious to me that there was a a very homoerotic aspect to uh, these men, yeah, straddling each other and spanking each other and really looking forward to, okay, well, You know, the gnome with the beard as long as a hoe is going to eat all the porridge and then we get our chance to uh, spank you. Uh, And yeah, I I agree with you 100%. I cannot wait for um, people to get their hands on this film and discuss and really chew on these aspects and... Yeah, like maybe inject a little more modern um theory into well, okay, well what what did this mean historically and what does this mean now, too? Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's uh that that's really great perspective. I, I was just gonna say that um I'm obviously not a historian either, but it's it's interesting the way that this movie um ends up sort of, uh, reflecting and resuming tensions and debates that, that are held within, um, like, like scholarly debates about mythology now, um, or, or that have always occurred, right? Like I, the same sort of tension of obvious homoeroticism that was subsequently erased by a culture for whom that homoeroticism was, um, inconvenient in greek mythology norse mythology arthurian mythology um basically all mythologies are, are completely ripe with um homoeroticism uh in part because like gender is symbolic in myth as everything is symbolic and so it doesn't make sense to have non uh homoerotic myths i in my opinion that may be uh stepping too far but um but it's it's interesting how like uh like homoeroticism has always been so obvious in myth and it's always been erased. And so it's, it's fascinating to see it here as it is frustrating to see how gender binaries are so conventionally expressed, uh, maybe for the purposes of mythological storytelling, but in frustrating ways, nonetheless, right? Like there's some misogyny here, uh, as there's misogyny in the Eve story or the Pandora story. Um, or the Arthurian stories, right with Morgan Le Fay. Um, it's it's interesting how those mythological elements, both misogyny and homoeroticism, recur throughout these. Um, I think that that the industrialization that this movie introduces gives all of those a really weird and interesting new um, facet in the idea that that this this traditional person, uh, tree shaker who is, who is literally weaned on the stories of his people is saving women from industrialization is interesting, maybe problematic, uh, but maybe just fascinating to think about, right. Um, and restoring them to their, to their rightful place, which is that he, he takes their apples and literally like brings them back above ground where they can nurture their palaces again with their men, uh, which is, a, a, there's a lot of fascinating symbolism happening there.
1: Uh listen man he he just wants a nice trad wife. Uh he just wants to sort of <laughs> have have his cake and eat it too. He wants he wants to live off the grid. Uh thank you for indulging me in that. Please continue. <laughs> yeah
3: and I agree 100%. I mean the presence of homoeroticism um you know does not mean that there will be a non-presence of misogyny, you know. In fact, um there is um, you know, in queer circles, um, a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of cruelty towards. I mean, the the classic example: no fats, no femmes. There is a um, a, a real um, there's a real presence of misogynistic and anti femme um, behavior and quote unquote preference in really any circle, like all circles, whether it's queer or cis right. or, you know, or straight. And, um, you know, that's why, you know, it is beneficial to point out, uh, the presence of misogyny, even though, you know, we do get, you know, I'm all for more gay content. Um, give me more gay content. That's all I want. But, um, even the presence of such uh, doesn't uh, alleviate the fact that there are these three women, and they are rescued from their palaces. Their palaces are moved above ground, and then they're moved back to, back into their palaces. <laughs> you know, they right. Um, you know, these princesses don't go out and explore the world around them. They kind of just sort of wait around to be rescued. And then presumably um, they wait around in their castle to tend to their um, slightly upgraded husbands. (laughs) So I, you know, it's um, like, there are so many conversations we could have about the, like the various aspects about this film, whether it's, um, you know, sexual theory or queer theory, um, feminism, uh, the role of masu- you know masculinity um I think it's really wonderful that the characters in this movie are seen to be vulnerable at times, which is quite amazing. you know they do cry and um fail and get frustrated um, but yeah there's there's just so much to talk about <laughs> there's so much to talk about.
1: Yeah, 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 it's, I, it's hard to work sometimes. Yeah,
0: right. Um, I mean, I, I think that that the fact that Tree Shaker himself comes from his mother, like the source of his strength, is is a mother who also represents um, sort of like freedom uh, in the in the nomadic sense and uh, traditional myth rearing is is interesting. Like, there's a there. It almost makes me want to be. Uh, easier on the movies, maybe purported uh, misogyny, especially because like that misogyny is such a place in myth, unfortunately. Um, but it, it, it is still, even that sort of depiction of power is, is frustratingly traditional and, uh, and, and almost funny in the way that it's like, yes, uh, women are allowed to be powerful, but they are allowed to be powerful in the sense that they rear powerful sons. <laughs> uh, but uh again like like this is that's a very famous uh mythological uh touchpoint that that recurs throughout a lot of these stories
3: yeah and also tree shaker is able to deal the fatal blow to the uh 12-headed dragon that's right because he you know he's weakened and the princess helps him lift the sword and I think they swing it together or the way they're positioned, they're positioned together with this sword and they are able to strike it down together, which is interesting.
0: That's very interesting. And also at the end, it looks as though the husbands and wives combine somehow, which is in their in their sort of final transformation sequence when they sort of become symbolic Uh, it says that they live together in perfect harmony and it shows the men and women combining with one another. So maybe there's a sense in which they're returning to um, femininity or expressiveness as embodied by um, nature or uh, vulnerability. Um, And there's, there's some interesting suggestion there as well. Uh, Like Sarah said, this is just a very rich thing.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I feel like I, I, unless anybody has any ob- objections, this is definitely a movie where you can like have either a series of favorite parts or a favorite part, just something that stuck out to you. Um, I know I've got a couple and I'd like to hear what the rest of the crew has in mind. I assume, you know, not all of us were taking notes, wink, wink at Cody, but uh, I'm assuming all of us have like, when we think about this movie and when we go back to it, there are parts we'll remember uh, and, and parts that stuck with us. Um, for me, it was the first time that I was like, this is this is something that's going to stick with this is like a classic in my mind. Of course, you know the the opening credits are just a really a really strong hit of the animation style in a very understated way. You know, you don't really understand what's going on because they're transparent lettering in front of just a rushing like forest scene and then it's revealed what's actually happening once the frame comes into full view. um but as the movie goes on and as things start happening that are like just slightly offbeat. Uh, I think we brought up a couple of them already, but but the moment that really like hit me and was like that made me think about this movie in a different way, and it puts it in a different class. Was very simple, but it's uh, when they're trying to forge a sword out of the gnome's beard, and like it keeps breaking and bending, and uh, and uh, tree <laughs> shaker, tree shaker says to to iron um god I've already forgotten his name iron thrasher uh, I keep saying thrasher Iron I temper, he's like, iron temper, you are a terrible blacksmith, <laughs> just like, very, as a quick funny. and it was just like, I don't know, it felt it, it, it to, to, to your point, Sarah, and yours, Harry, it felt like it was humanizing those characters in a lot of really interesting ways. And I would like to know if, you know, if this has another uh, translation, what that translation looks like, and how it addresses some of those things, because it almost felt too. Infrequent to be naturally there as part of the scripting or part of the writing, but it just like that jumped out to me. That was one of my favorite parts. Um, Cody, do you have any other like standout parts that that you really liked or that that you want to recount?
2: Sure. Um, two quick ones, I guess, because they they sort of bookend the movie. Um, the one at the end that I came around on and it was from uh, a thread that sort of confused me at first, where um uh, tree Shaker was, he seemed to be uh, expressing some sort of uh, jealousy or or um, envy uh, when he thinks his brothers have left him in the underworld. And it, it, it was something that didn't really have, it didn't feel like there was a source. Um, but, and I, I guess I can, you can kind of chalk it up to, I guess, his arc. You know, it, it is an arc of uh, mostly success and him just getting stronger and better Uh, in combat, um, and the sort. But then it it comes around to it, and he has that breakdown um, that was brought up earlier. You know, the fact that these characters, these heroes do uh, fail, and they do feel feelings, and he just breaks down. Um, You know, uh, Tree Sugar has earned the power of humility, uh, and he profusely apologizes. (laughs) Um, That was... uh, I I liked that a ton, and I liked um, our... It just... It, not a specific moment necessarily, but the opening few sequences where we're being regaled, uh, the story of this, uh, godly family, um, and the sound design, you know, and, and this is, you know, a, a credit to seeing it in an environment like the Trilon, um, there's you know, just the warbling of the, of the soundtrack coupled with the, the naturalistic sound effects, uh, that, that, um, that, cropped up as well um there were cricket noises as well um and i was like wow this man seeing this in a in a theater is is amazing this restoration is phenomenal but then i realized that it must have just been crickets hanging out outside of the theater door um so shout out to the trylon for bringing in oh, wait, 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 uh, some you, additional you, natural elements
1: you think so i i noticed I, that i, I, was I like, think so. So. that must be in the movie because it didn't happen so, in- were, there,
0: were there crickets in your version of the movie I don't remember crickets. adventures <laughs> oh, right. really, for us. I can. I think wow. been... the nice
3: thing about renting it is, I can as soon as we're done recording, I'm going to go to that scene and find. It'll be like <laughs> the um, the urban legend of um, <laughs> Wizard of Oz. This yeah, oh, did backwards. you did you did you hear the crickets? Well, legend has it that if you hear the crickets or whatever, uh, yeah, hey, it was Arbol, probably um. a cricket in the theater. <laughs>
1: release the cricket cut i demand you release the cricket cut <laughs>
3: yes the cricket cut and then we can finally finally kick off the white mare cinematic universe
1: oh my god <laughs> at long last <laughs> i mean I, I would just look
2: forward to when they release that cut on crick Oh,
0: all right cody
1: your time's over Harry, do you have any other uh <laughs> no uh, i'm kidding. if you got any other I, cody we'll come back to you
0: i really like the beginning like uh the the storytelling that when the white mare tells uh, her, her son, the story, um, my favorite part was probably the dragon escalation. Uh, I couldn't wait to see the next dragon. Um, I felt like I was playing shadow of the Colossus or something. Um, it was like very exciting to, to think about what the next uh, dragon was going to look like and what it was going to mean. Uh And it's particularly, I loved seeing the wives too, and the the different wife designs and and how they sort of um, matched up with their respective husbands. That was super interesting. Um, I I loved all of the wrestling contests where they just pick each other up and throw them into the ground, (laughs) like literally into the ground. Um, I thought that was very funny and I was super glad every time that came back. Um, Yeah, I, uh, I, I guess I, I really loved the confrontations because like Sarah said, like the whole thing feels like a, a fucking heavy metal album cover. And so it was super cool to see tree shaker with like his lightning sword, just going to town on like the, the Titan from Hercules, which is just what the first dragon is like exactly. Um, so yeah, I, I thought that's, that stuff was so rad.
1: <laughs> Sarah, I'll naturally throw to you next. Uh, yeah. What did you see? That's going to like, emblem be emblematic of this movie to you uh
3: well the character design uh, specifically of the three dragons that first dragon the three-headed one the way its face illuminated as it entered the castle when it like vomited onto tree shaker and uh got bigger as it was eating and um, all the way down to the was it the was it the gun like the machine one that like kind of uh, like scooped all of the yeah it scooped all the food into its like garbage disposal mouth or whatever <laughs> it, it was awesome uh, the way that those characters spoke um, like the city the twelve headed uh, city dragon at the end and. Um, It almost looked like something out of Tron. Um, It almost looked like the MCP or whatever, where... Holy
0: shit, yeah, totally.
3: Each um, tower recites a word, and it's very... Oh, I I just... I could go on and on and on about just those three characters, and how rich they are, and when they're fighting, the fights with those characters are awesome. Like, when the the 12 headed dragon mirrors the princess and they're both walking towards yeah. him. Oh, which one could it possibly be? It's, Oh, I, even now I'm just like, I've got the biggest grin on my face because thinking about them is just making me think of like Tron and even like Zelda and like all of these things I love. And I never even thought, um, Like thinking about the connection they have to this movie is just so wonderful and exciting. And I can't wait to uh, make more connections. Uh, Also, a tiny thing, a tiny thing I loved in this movie, which is probably one of my also little nitpicks. And it made me chuckle a bit. When he's shouting at the castles to stop spinning, he sounds like Homer Simpson. And I was incredibly <laughs> pleased that he did it three times, because each time it was like, it sounded like Homer yelling at Flanders or something. It was it just like, man, he sounds exactly like Homer
0: Simpson. And I love it. That's amazing.
3: Rah! stop spinning or I'll destroy you. Totally imagine Homer <laughs> saying that. Yeah, yeah, that's
2: <laughs> amazing when he got vomited on, he was like, (laughs)
3: Oh man, that vomit thing was awesome. It's so
0: cool. Yeah. And
3: apparently the sound design in this movie, I think it was, um, reconstructed in the, um, remaster. So, yeah. So there's an added intentionality to that because it's like, okay, well we want to honor and at least that's, I did a little bit of reading on this remaster or this restoration. And I think that's what, um, what they said they did. It was either the sound or the music, but if it's, if that's true for the sound, then, you know, you have that, okay, well, we want to honor the intent, but we also want the sound to sound really juicy and crispy and amazing. And whoever was responsible for that vomit sound. Oh, it was amazing.
0: They nailed it.
1: Oh. uh yeah i i'm thinking of the uh when the griffin is vomiting are you thinking of the first dragons vomiting or the the, or the, the, vomiting?
3: the first um the first dragon so he uh, like vomits the like soil onto him or something and like gets, lava or something and, yeah, yeah lava and he gets smaller and smaller yeah.
1: Aha! Uh-huh. That see, it, I guess it's it's testament to this movie's sound design and its use of like very characteristic and unique moments that I couldn't even pinpoint which vomiting sound you were talking about because <laughs> of the ones that stuck out. And I gotta say, like the last thing that I legitimately laughed at in this movie was very near the end, and it's when the Griffin uh gives him back parts of his leg after he's sacrificed his leg to 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 let her to help her get to the top of the you know get out of the underworld and it's just like this this god awful ah sound that she just lets out like a very human sounding sound they didn't do anything to make it sound like a bird or or a griffin uh throwing up I don't, it was it was very God, it was so fucking funny. I just—it
0: was very funny, and also like you're you're thinking to yourself like a moment before it happens, like wait, the Griffin said he's going to give back the legs, but like he needed that for strength, so like won't the legs be sort of digested? And like just as in your mind you're getting to the word digested, he spits out these gross like chunks, <laughs> and it's like oh well, there it is. Uh-
3: yeah man, and the uh, griffin even says hey what was that last thing you fed me it tasted so good like at first i thought oh crap is he gonna have to fight this griffin because now the griffin yeah. is like addicted to like man flesh it's so exactly <laughs> what was that thing you fed me it tasted so good man if i knew that your kind tasted so great oh man like
1: that even part you know was blood awesome. in this griffin.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's the I, sequel for the the White Mary universe. <laughs> the Griffin goes goes wild for the taste of human flesh. Yeah, <laughs> it, we
3: we follow all the uh, hatchlings on their journey.
1: Ooh. I like this I like this direction. It like it reminds me in many ways, I guess now compiling all of my favorite funny moments. It those remind me very much of the sort of like very millennial humor moments of something like Adventure Time or Regular Show or Flapjack. Or even like I don't know Steven Universe as well, but very, but even Steven Universe, where it's like just moments that stick out because they're not. Uh, I get. Uh, sorry.
0: Yeah. No, I'm sorry. I. It's interesting that you bring up uh, Adventure Time because, like this, that show in particular feels like deeply indebted to this. Right. But, right. Uh, please myth- continue.
1: The mythical, mythical heroes quest, but like even the comedic timing of a lot of this stuff. And again, that's why I'm so perplexed and bewildered, but in a great way by this is because again, it's got those two different, like clearly it is a myth being told for what were then modern audiences in 1981, uh, you know, a a myth hundreds of years old at that time. And I'm assuming that these were ways that they were, they, they modernized it. Uh, You know, they were, they didn't modernize it in ways that promoted, you know, uh, gender equality or the, uh, you know, deconstruction of gender roles or anything, but they did modernize it in a way that like made the points a little more. It's almost like your grandfather is reading you the, the, the storybook, right? Like, I feel like my dad is reading me Delaire's book of Greek myths and is editorializing on every other page in a lot of the, in a lot of these vignettes from this movie. I, I loved it a lot. Um, And I love it even more now that we're talking about it uh, because, hearing everybody else's opinions and sort of what they got out of it is just making me realize how rich and full and just dense a a movie. It really is. Um, As I understand the filmmaker is still alive. I hope people get him on the horn to, uh, to talk more about like the making of this movie, because I get, again, I said so little of it is currently out there.
3: Yeah, apparently. (laughs) So as I was doing a little bit of reading up on him, Apparently, one of his shorts, I think it was the one that was nominated for an Academy Award, the Sisyphus one. Apparently, according to its Wikipedia page, it was featured in a 2008 car commercial. (laughs) So hopefully, yeah, (laughs) so hopefully we can... um, uh, if if not this filmmaker in particular, <laughs> maybe encourage um, <laughs> filmmakers who are inspired by this work, but just like inspired in general to uh, make stuff that's so rich and expressive and wonderful and not just at the service of a car commercial or... Though, I mean, it was used for that commercial af- well after the fact of it.
1: Sure, movie. sure. But still,
3: um, it let's uh you know allow like some space for filmmakers and animators to just make stuff and not just sell
1: merch. oh yeah for certain <laughs> one must yeah.
0: imagine sisyphus with all-wheel drive oh yeah
3: <laughs> oh yeah like you can imagine like the gri- he instead of riding the griffin he's just riding like a volkswagen or something and he's sure. feeding
0: <laughs> oxen and wine to this volkswagen <laughs> He's, he's at just one point, us- uh, Stone Smasher's like, "Well, wait a minute, though. That those that hill looks steep. I don't know if we'll be able to make it." And he's like, "Don't worry. This Volkswagen suspension will easily." Yeah,
3: forge me I a better sword. Gear. You're
0: terrible at forging swords, and it
3: comes back down from the cosmos, and it's just <laughs> a like a Ford F one fifty.
1: Jesus Christ! Well, I feel like we've reached the natural, uh, natural finale of a lot of our talking points. Um, before we toss to our final segment, uh, I I want to give one more shot. Anybody's remaining thoughts? Any remaining notes? I feel like I've covered a lot of what made this movie distinctive to me and why I'm really going to want to get back to it as soon as possible. Um, but I want to leave the door open before we get to our to our final segment to anybody else's last thoughts.
0: Um, I think it's it's in some ways it's, it's political, it's historical without being didactic in any sense. Um, it's environmentally aware. Um, it's fascinated by animation history and storytelling history and in many ways, um, colonial history and the history of imperialism and what that erases as Sarah alluded to, um, and what it looks like to, um, reappropriate those stories and myths and bring them to a modern age um, I would, I I don't know, after talking about it, I would be comfortable calling this a lost classic and probably any something that anybody who is interested in um, any animation should see. Um, and I liked it a lot and highly recommend it.
1: Great. Well, uh, I think, Harry, you and I have some introducing to do of our final That's segment. That's true, we do. Um, and it's we a segment to... called. It's a segment called, sorry. <gasps> Cody's, Cody's. Noties.
2: I I tell you the the synchronization gets better and better each time. I promise you. Uh, I I've been you asking it about it in the past.
0: We're within like a second now. We're like usually more a no, full second. Like, yeah.
2: Um. Yeah. No. Thank you for that. As always. Um. This movie uh inspired uh two different categories of noties. I hope that's okay. Uh. One of them will be more didactic in nature, and one of them uh, following that will be. Uh, very interactive, uh, I promise you. So I'll get the didactic stuff out of the way first. Um, you know we've we've talked about a lot uh, today regarding *Son of the White Mare*. Um, a lost classic feels apt, and you know we're talking about how this movie and its themes uh, kind of find their way into uh, present day uh, conventions. Um, so with that, I want to introduce um, a new attempt at uh, a segment. Uh, that I will call six degrees of goofy movie. And so the idea behind oh, this, yeah, the idea behind this is, um, you know, we're talking about lost classics, goofy movie definitely fits the bill, uh, favorite movie of the pod. I would even uh, go as far to say, um, so six degrees of separation, six degrees of Kevin Bacon, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the same idea holds here. Um, trying to map these two movies together using six or fewer connections. And I will say, uh, I get spoiler alert. I came into this expecting a fairly uphill climb, but thankfully, um, or maybe unthankfully, this journey wasn't too strenuous. Um, So we start with The Son of the White, uh, Son of the White Mare, rather, uh, the 1981 release movie directed by Marcel uh, Jankovic, who has been shouted out uh, on this episode, rightfully so. Um, It was brought up, he is still alive, um, and that is true. He's a sprightly, I believe, uh, 78 years old, um, and we have. Uh, him to thank in this case for building more than his fair share of this bridge. Um, Whitemare reportedly got the attention of an American animation historian named Charles Solomon, who then convinced uh the Disney Corporation uh to hire Jankovics for their proposed film. Uh, titled at the time kingdom of the sun. And that was intended to be an animated musical epic. And over time it gradually transformed into what we know today as the, uh, two thousands, the emperor's new groove. Uh, so shit. Jankovic was in the art department, uh, for the emperor's new groove, uh, apparently apparently mostly to fund his own planned projects, which go off King, um, that rules, uh, and he did make some projects after that. Um, none of which I know a lot about. Um, Reach the end of my expertise in that expertise in that regard, but um, it's it's uh again not a strenuous journey. I did consider weaving uh, together a web of overlapping and intersecting careers of various Disney artists because they seem to have uh, their hands in the same cookie jars, uh, so to speak. But it seemed better to take the most efficient path possible, um, as one would want to do on a quest. Uh, So I did come away with two paths. Um, It wouldn't shock me in the slightest if there were others that I just missed. Uh, but the first two that stood out, we have, um, Coralie Kudo-Lisior, um, and I almost certainly butchered that and I'm sorry, uh, who worked as a production manager for both The Emperor's New Groove and A Goofy Movie. And then, uh, again, apologies for any mispronunciations. We have, uh, Sylvie bennett Foke, who worked as a 2D animation processing supervisor on New Groove and then a production manager, as a production manager on Goofy Movie. So, um... You know, the shrinking the world a little bit. Um, you know, pretty uh intimate connections. That's oddly comforting, I
0: think. My mind is blown. I yeah. honestly my mind was already blown into pieces by the time you were talking about how he was on the Emperor's New Groove.
2: Yeah. I was anticipating a full evening uh of like IMDB surfing and it just like didn't happen <laughs>
3: because the director, Son of the White
2: was working on the Emperor's New Groove. Uh blew me away too
3: yeah apparently uh the early production of emperor's New Groove was a bit of a uh, a thing <laughs> you know it changed Ooh. um so much um and it was much more serious and i weirdly enough it's uh you know probably the best Disney movie ever made it's an amazing wow. example of what That's- it eventually became but man, I can't even imagine what the original intent would have looked like.
2: Yeah. That's a hot I love take, that take and a
0: good take. That's a, yeah, that's a good I love take.
2: that. Yeah, that's amazing. And, you know, uh, speaking of uh, making art or just making things in general, um, some of the Way, uh did inspire a new iteration of tri-libs, uh, if y'all would like to uh, jump into some of that. Um, for those... For those unaware, uh, Trilibs is our feeble attempt at emulating um, the Mad Libs that we know and love uh, from growing up. Um, I've got a, a story here that is skewed towards uh, Son of the White Mare, uh, the movie we uh, all recently watched and that you all should go watch if you're listening to this. Um... Hopefully it's widely available by the time that uh, you hear this. Um, But uh, so this is vaguely a quest themes. And um, unless there are any questions, what I hope to do is just go to you all in reverse alphabetical order by first name. So we'll do uh, Sarah, then Jason, then Harry, and I'll just give you, you know, the thing that we're looking for to fit the story. If that sounds good to you all. Let's do it. Hit us. Hell yeah. Um, Figuratively hitting you. All right, first up, we've got uh, Sarah. What I need from you is an animal, any animal.
3: Ooh, praying mantis. Wow, amazing. We're off through
2: Jesus, praying. Jesus,
1: coming out of the gate's hot.
2: <laughs> um, And uh, Jason, from you, I'm going to need a name, any name of a person. Uh,
1: f- like uh, full Like name a person's just- name? Okay. Just wait, uh, okay.
3: What, whatever you,
2: whatever you'd like.
1: Hmm. Uh, Brian Griffin.
2: God damn it! All right. Um, and I'm going to be filling this in to other places, so I am going to stall for a few seconds. Perfect. Uh, Harry, what I need from you is a number. Fourteen. Fourteen. All right, Uh, back to Sarah. From you, could I please get um, an object that's found in nature?
3: Oh. Wow, why is this stumping me? Um, I I, I
2: described it very weirdly. Okay, perfect. That's, yes. Um, Filling in more things... Didn't want to use pronouns in this, so I'm just typing stuff in. I'm gonna keep going with this sentence. It's not gonna be edited out, I'm sure. All right, classic
1: uh, uh Jason Daphnex technique you're pulling here.
2: <laughs> um speak of the devil, uh you dog. Jason from you. I need another name.
1: Um Stewie Griffin.
2: Oh, Jesus Christ. Why why? <laughs> <laughs> um, Harry, from you, I'm gonna need a type of creature.
0: I can't do praying mantis. We already did praying mantis. Oh uh, man! Whatever you like, jersey jersey devil. Whoa!
2: Ooh,
3: yep. nice. All
2: right. Um, let's see. All right, Sarah, from you, I'm gonna need a weapon.
3: The pen. <sighs>
2: Excellent <laughs> for it is
3: mightier than the sword.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Um I hesitate to throw it back to Jason, but we do need another name.
1: Oh no, come on. You can't. All right. Peter Griffin.
2: <sighs> I want to die. Um Harry. Uh another type of creature.
0: Um we'll go with uh the Loch Ness monster Nessie this time.
1: Jesus. We got Stewie, we got I'm Brian, we got Peter. No, no, no. And and we, and we got the Jersey Devil and Nessie and a pen. Jesus. Um from
2: Sarah, uh from Sarah, I will need from you a, a skill, a type of skill.
3: Ooh. Um iron tempering.
0: Very appropriate.
2: Um, Jason, I think you uh, got this one last time, but from you uh, I'm going to need the name of a movie.
1: Ooh. Uh, John Wick Chapter 2. <laughs> Excellent.
2: Um, now it is Harry's turn to present a name.
0: Uh, do it.
1: Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it.
0: Archduke Franz Ferdinand.
1: This
2: you still with us, Harry?
0: Oh, did I did I cut out? Yeah, very, uh, very briefly. Yeah. Oh, well, I said uh, Archduke I Franz Ferdinand.
2: Archduke Franz Ferdinand. I need to pick up their new album. Um, let's see here. All right, filling in more names. I'm not making this awkward for anybody, especially not myself. Yeah. We'll All right. And
1: mention how you're not making it awkward. That's the best way to not make it awkward.
2: That's, yeah, that's why I said it. it right? uh, um, I believe we're back to Sarah. I need from you a number.
3: Oh. <laughs> Two.
2: Excellent. Um. And then from Jason, I'm going to need a body part.
1: Literally. Ooh, Ooh uh, my leg.
3: <laughs> I knew it. My leg. My leg. Oh, my leg. my leg. A delicious griffin-feeding uh, griffin, griffin feeding leg. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we have fun. Um, filling in more names. Um, man, this is really shaping up. Uh, and this is a bit of a, a bit of a longer one. Um, apologize for that. Um, all right, it's
0: Excellent. all going to be worth it, Cody.
2: Will it? Oh, I hope so. Um, oh boy, who are we at now? <laughs> I'm keeping very you good track of oh, this. We're Harry,
0: I believe. Yep. Yeah, I think so. Uh,
2: Harry, from you, I'm going to need a type of relative.
0: Great aunt. Great
2: aunt. Excellent. And okay. Perfect. I think we've got everything. Um, oh, I have a lot, not a lot. I have some more spaces to fill in. Um, so I'm going to throw it over to Jason to fill this up uh, oh, wow. with his, his musings while I uh, clickety clack in the background.
1: Uh, so I was doing some. Uh, uh, recent I wanted to, let's training. ask Sarah about. Uh I, no, I want to talk Sarah about, Franklin, about
0: uh, <laughs> Emperor's New Groove, actually, because uh I was very interested in her take on Emperor's New Groove. This is
1: this is what Harry says when he's combative about something, so tread with that and knowledge. In I mind. say
0: let's let's ask Sarah about Emperor's New Groove is what I say when I'm being combative <laughs> Yep. Those are fighting words.
1: Eighty-two episodes in, and I I know that tone. <laughs> No, I, no, I'm also really interested. I, I just listened to a podcast where somebody was talking recounting some of the history of that movie. Uh so if you've got any insight or, or thoughts to share, please.
3: Um I mean, I like the movie a lot. <laughs> that's kind of all the insight I have. I mean, I there's um a, a documentary about the making of Emperor's New Groove that's um I'm not sure where you can access it, but it I guess it sort of details the transition from the original story intent to what it became which is essentially almost like an snl sketch (laughs) but animated right um yeah i i love emperor's new groove i remember seeing that in theaters when it came out i remember watching it at home all the time i still love watching it every time i watch it i have a great time it is eartha kit is the greatest oh casting God. decision it's... of all time Who, like yeah i would murder to get eartha kit on a
0: project it's unbelievable it's like jk simmons as a um as J. Jonah Jameson levels of like yeah like inspired casting. Yeah, I uh I also grew up with uh Emperor's New Groove and uh just adore that movie. Um it's it's funny we haven't talked about it very much, but yeah, that movie it rules.
3: Yeah, it's it's just so goofy and it's so rare that you get something that's just like eh, you know, whatever, let's just make something ridiculously goofy and it's almost I I just love it. I it's pure goofiness. It's just it's so funny. Yeah, yeah, it's ridiculously funny. Still ridiculously funny. I mean, how old is it now? It must be nearing oh, 20.
2: twenty. 20 yeah. years. Yeah, I think this is the this year would be the twentieth anniversary. Oh, wow. shout outs! Yeah, shout out to the Emperor's New Groove.
0: Happy
3: twentieth oh, anniversary, God. Emperor's New Groove. This uh, episode was just to commemorate the Emperor's New Groove. That's right. That's Loki. we're going to
0: call it. Emperor's new groove featuring son of the white mirror coming
3: out of the <laughs> Disney vault this summer emperor or streamable on Disney plus right now. Emperor's new groove. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: well, I wonder what, what happens if... to the Disney vault yeah. now that Disney plus is a thing.
1: It's just, it's a look, but don't touch scenario right now. Um, I want, I wonder what would happen? What would happen though? If we like, if we hard pivoted to being Disney plus stands, like I can't, I don't have it. I won't, I won't get it. But like, what if, what do you think it would do? How would it change us?
3: Well, well. I mean,
1: goofy, goofy movies on it. It can't be all bad. Uh, that's true.
3: Are you going to cover extremely goofy movie?
1: Mm-hmm. I love it. I wouldn't, goofy. Goofy. I wouldn't okay. be opposed to that. <laughs> so yeah. the, so the plan is goofy movie at episode one hundred of our podcast. An extremely goofy movie at episode two hundred of our podcast.
3: That <laughs> oh, That's <laughs> so fair. I think, fair. Uh, yeah, I think
1: we're was, to... those are epic <laughs> stories. Yeah. Bonus Speaking episode of, epic of
0: uh, Goof Troop too. Oh man! Sure. Of course. For subscribers, that's we'll yeah, have that's, it then.
1: that's a sub Patreon. <laughs> cover the, cover the whole series and the Super Nintendo video game. Um, which it, mm-hmm. it'll be, we'll launch two different podcasts just to cover goof content. Goof by goof. goof I love it
2: um excellent uh yeah sorry that took so long the addition of last names and these characters and the fact that they were all griffin made it uh more <laughs> difficult than I... <laughs> um but i think we're ready here uh so this is uh trilibs uh quest edition i don't know working title <clears throat> once upon a time a godly praying mantis gave birth to a child this child named brian griffin was destined to conquer the ever-growing darkness that festered our world. Brian Griffin trained for 14 years, hidden within a leaf. At long last, Brian Griffin was ready to make the daunting journey to the underworld. Along the way, Brian Griffin was joined by two companions, Stewie Griffin, a Jersey devil who favored the pen, and Peter Griffin, a Loch Ness monster who is skilled at iron tempering. (laughs) Together, they vanquished countless enemies. They even defeated the cast of the movie John Wick Chapter Two in combat.
0: Holy shit! That's oh, no easy feat. Yeah. very impressive. By you the got way, common, uh,
2: Can you beat common? You really beat common? Yeah, that's that feat is uncommon. Uh, at long last, they stood at the foot of the throne of the nefarious Archduke Franz Ferdinand, Lord of the Underworld. Archduke Franz Ferdinand had two heads and twice the amount of legs. Brian Griffin and Archduke Franz Ferdinand, that is a borderline mouthful in a good way, uh, clashed their swords against one another. Staring deeply into Brian Griffin's eyes, Archduke Franz Ferdinand trembled, voice breaking. Archduke Franz Ferdinand said, No, it can't be. Brian Griffin? It's me, your great-aunt, they embraced. Archduke Franz Ferdinand vowed to help restore balance to the world from that day forward. Together... Brian Griffin, Stewie Griffin, Peter Griffin, and Archduke Franz Ferdinand all watched John Wick Chapter 2. The four of them were bummed that the cast had been slaughtered. For now, there could be no sequels. Uh, which, we, it turns out, is false. Um John back. Wick Chapter 3. Uh, and they lived happily ever after. The end.
3: Wow! Mm-hmm.
0: Aww. Yeah. what a twist I really thought for a minute that was going to be a story about how the Griffin family started World War <laughs> One. That
3: would, be, <laughs> that
2: would be too true to life for comfort and I didn't want to go down that path uh, oh, so I sidestepped
3: it that's the alt history novel
0: we're all waiting for <laughs> yeah I think that's that's uh, Tarantino's next film right yeah. The, yeah.
1: Authors- the script
2: leaked online I think you're right
1: oh uh, yeah all right. Well, thank you so much, Cody, for bringing a little bit of brightness to the end of every episode. Um, Thank you so much, Sarah, for uh, joining us. I'm so glad we could land you for this sh- podcast. We hope you'll come back again um, if and when uh, John and the crew decides to put on their big people pants and uh, and play more damn anime at the Trilon. Uh, I know that now Now's probably a bad <laughs> time to ask, but, but, but they should, um, there's a lot that's, that's really worth it. Uh, and I'm not even a person who works in that. So thank you again, Sarah, for being on, uh, and for sharing all of your, uh, artist storyboarder wisdom. Um, and, uh, and I hope we can coax you back on here sometime soon.
3: Yeah. Anytime. I will try to wrangle some more, uh, cartoons onto the trial on screen just so I can, uh, join you, uh, wonderful Hell people yeah. again. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, we love yeah. calling
1: in favors. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so this of course has been our episode about son of the white mayor a 1981, Hungarian animated film, which you can find on Vimeo now, uh, or you can buy a ticket t- to see at the Trilon. Uh, you can also buy a ticket to see at the Trilon and then watch it at home. Uh, best of every world uh, support the Trilon. If you do have, happen to go to the Trilon, wear a fucking mask, uh, be responsible. They have a lot of rules for a reason. Um, do the right thing uh, or, or, or die uh this has been our episode about son of the white Mare*. this is try love you can find us on twitter at try love podcast you can find the trylon at trylon cinema buy tickets and support them at trylon.org um and you can find me jason daphnis on twitter at intend
2: i've been cody narvison you can find me on twitter at cody underscore bh uh,
0: and i'm harry you can find me at shiitake harry thanks again for ha- coming on sarah
3: yeah thank you again it was wonderful we wear a mask, watch more movies.
2: Well, we're going to try our luck in the underworld. Want to join us?